Welcome back to our series that we are calling The Story of God. Last week, Kevin did, if you didn't hear it, please get online and listen to it. Did a great job of setting the table for the rest of our teaches. And he said the Bible is a story. And it is. The Bible is a library of writings that are both human and divine in origin that together tell a unified story that lead us, lead us to Jesus. But Kevin also said um, that it's a story that we are meant to participate in. And it's, it's meant to evoke wonder and awe. And, and the story is not just past history. It, it's a true story. It's an ongoing story. And we can choose to live in it as, as it is unfolding right now in, in real time. At the same time, God's story in Scripture also confronts the, the broken, incomplete, and outright false stories that surround us daily. I mean, we're bombarded by them. I, I love what our very own, you just saw him, he's so talented, we're so blessed to have him. Our very own Mick Colinani says about story, storytelling and God's story. He says, and I quote, the war that Satan is winning right now, he ultimately won't win it, but right now the war that he's winning is the war of storytelling. There is a, a secular story underneath this whole moral revolution that puts humanity at the center with the power to define good and evil. It was a tempting narrative for our first parents. And it is a tempting narrative today for us. This is why we have to proclaim God's story. We were made for rich relationships and profound purpose with Jesus in his kingdom and under his authority. Every other story must bend the knee. So, for the next four months, roughly four months, we'll break down the story of God into five segments. We'll look at this morning, we'll look at the kingdom created. Jim will pick it up next week with kingdom broken. We'll look at kingdom expected and kingdom advancing and eventually kingdom restored. But this morning, kingdom created. So do me a favor, if you haven't already, open your Bibles or Bible devices to Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. We'll be looking at Genesis chapters 1 and 2 this morning, but let's start with verse 1. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and, and the earth. And I want us to think about this first phrase for just just a, a moment, in the beginning, God. It's, it's so simple and yet profound. It sets the tone for not only the prologue, but for all of Scripture. It, it makes us sit up and prepare for what follows. Appropriately, the subject of the first sentence of the Bible and the book of Genesis is God. In nearly every verse in this first chapter, all 31 Verses, we see God as the subject. God said, God saw, God made, God blessed. Thus we say without apology that the Bible is first and foremost a revelation concerning God. And from the very first verse, God discloses truth about himself. The term used for God, the, the term used most often in the Old Testament is Elohim. 
and it refers to the deity. And like our English word God, it can, it can be used to refer to other gods. But here it, it's in a singular grammatical form. And thus it's used for the one and true living God, the God who communicates and, and does things. So let's continue. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but this sentence was and in its day and remains to this day perhaps the single most controversial and important sentence that's ever been written. It changed the world. Now think about this. In the beginning, God, a transcendent, all-powerful, eternal, personal being, creates. And when the writer picked his pen up from the paper and those words had been written down, the world has been forever changed. Do me a favor, if you have it, and you can hold your phone up as well if that's your device, just hold up your Bible for a second. Just, just grip it, look at it. Not only the book of Genesis, but the Bible as a whole has changed the history of this world more than every other document, volume, or letter put together. The greatest minds in the history of our, our race, the human race, have devoted themselves to studying that book that you're holding. Now get this, they, they've moved to foreign countries and studied foreign cultures and languages so this book could be translated so that people could read it. Many of you are sitting here because of this book. And many people over the centuries, now I want you to really think about this, have sacrificed their life, they gave up their lives for the book that you're holding. Right now, as you're looking at this book, there are people in prison because of that book. Please write this down. This is God's great gift to us, and now it's your chance, yours and mine, our chance to devote ourselves to this book, to this work, to this story. So this morning, I want us to look at three essential items of information, just three, that the writer of Genesis wants us to understand about the story of creation. Because as Kevin said last week, foundations are really important. The beginning of the story is really important. Three observations. The first one I'll put in the form of a question. Um, it's a question that kids ask all the time, right? Why? Why did God create anything. And it's, it's a fair question. Why does anything exist at all? A, a, again, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning, God. God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And I want, to, I want to stop here and point out something that a number of Old Testament scholars have noted. In verse 1, we see the work of the Father in creation, the first member of the, the Trinity who created all things. In the New Testament book of James, James chapter 1 and verse 17, he is called the Father of every good and perfect gift. He is called the Creator. Now in verse 2, who is it that is hovering over the waters? Did you catch that? Yes, yeah, the Spirit of God. It's the same language and the same imagery that's used in the New Testament to describe the Spirit of God who descends like a dove over the baptismal waters of Jesus. You're like, wow. 
Verse 3 talks about God creating by speaking. How powerful is God? By speaking his word. And, and it's the opening words of the gospel of John. John chapter 1 and verse 1. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. Let's go down to verse 14. John chapter 1. The word. Now he describes who the word is. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. He came to live with us, God in skin. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Well, who was the Word? That's Jesus. Jesus, God the Son. So in the first three verses of the Old Testament, we have the first hint about the existence of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Spirit, and God the Son, the, the Word, and as, I, as a picture of that, I, I, I've set something up here I don't usually do. I've got three chairs here that represent God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. The teaching of Scripture is that God exists before time in the Trinity, in an unceasing state of love and joy and delight. Now, Kevin talked about this briefly last week, but unlike the stories of pagan myths in that day, the God of the Bible didn't create because he was lonely or bored or needed help getting the work done. Rather, and, and please hear this, out of the richness of his magnificent being, out of the fullness of the community of Trinity, God says this, and I want you to see it. Let's create human beings, not as God, but in our own image, and then let's invite them to begin um, to bask in the fellowship of real community, the community of the Trinity. And, and I want us to think about this for just a moment. For the first time in history, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, they invite us in the fellowship with them. For me personally, it meant that 38 years ago, at the age of, of 17, God called me into this community. You say, well, how, how, how did he call you? Well, the way he calls every single person into that community. I had access to the Trinitarian community through the blood of his son. At the age of 17, in an old-fashioned, independent Baptist re revival, I walked an aisle, and I gave my heart and my life to Jesus. I repented of my sin, and as the sin sacrifice, I embraced him as Savior and Lord, and then I sat down in this Trinitarian community. Now get this. For the first time, I went, oh, whew. that's what a father feels like. He said, well, you had a dad. I love my dad. Wasn't a great dad. I love him. He's been dead for 20 years. I think about him almost every week. But he wasn't a great dad. But even if he was a great dad, he's not this dad. And for the first time, I went, oh, that's, what, that's how a father loves. And then for the first time, I went, unconditional love. That's how the son loves, closer than a brother. And then for the first time, I, the Bible says, God in me, the hope of glory. First Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 13, when I became a follower of Jesus, I was baptized with the Holy Spirit 
the Holy Spirit came to live inside of me. It's 17 in this Trinitarian community of pure and absolute love and joy. And the Holy Spirit has been working on me ever since. You're thinking, man, you don't have much of a filter. Hey, at 55, it's a lot better than 17. Trust me, okay? That's the Holy Spirit whispering, working, convicting, loving, encouraging, rebuking. I want to give some pastoral warning here right now. Here's the the potential danger is you all sit in community right now, potentially. And many of you, and this is good, you've come, someone invited you, maybe, maybe it was a Juana's as a little kid, maybe it was a youth group or a, a college event or a community group. And you came into this community and it, it became therapeutic. And some of you, and some of you online, You've never sat in this community. But you're out in that community. And so you say, what's the danger? Here's the danger. This community, as good as it is, without that will fail you. Someone will say something that upsets you. Someone will do something that upsets you. Some Christian figure, bigger and larger and more famous than anyone in this room, um, will do something on a grand scale that's horrible. You know what might happen? A pandemic or societal unrest or suffering. And if you're not in this community, if you're only in a therapeutic community apart from Trinitarian community, you know what will happen? You'll go, I don't want it. Trinitarian community allows me to go, wow. This is hard suffering. Pandemics are hard. Physical abuse is hard. Christians failing is hard. But God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit aren't any of those things. I like what the late Dallas Willard has to say about community. He says, God's aim in human history is the creation of of an inclusive community of loving persons, now get this, with himself included as its primary sustainer and most glorious inhabitant. That's what God's up to. That's why you and I exist. We exist in a universe that it, at its most fundamental root doesn't exist of atoms or molecules, but a trinity of loving persons. That's the reality in which we live. That's why we're, we're human beings. First observation, why did God create anything? He created it for this. For this. Second observation that I want to make about the story of creation is God created so that his community would have a wonderful place to live. Here's what I want to do. It's a little different. You experienced it last week. We think it's really good. We don't usually do this, 
but I'm going to do it this morning. You'll see it on and off throughout our series. I want to show you another video from the Bible Project, which I think brings this second point together. So um, just enjoy this for the next few minutes. first book in the Bible is called Genesis. And we're going to look closely at the first page of the book of Genesis. It's a carefully crafted narrative about God creating and ordering the whole cosmos. Okay, let's check it out. Now, the opening line of the whole Bible is, In the beginning, God created the skies and the land. Now, your Bible translation might say, the heavens and the earth. In biblical Hebrew, the word for heaven refers simply to the sky above. And the word for earth does not mean globe, but rather the land. The ground below us. Right. This line is summarizing what's going to happen in the following narrative, which starts in the next line. And it reads, Now the land was wild and waste. This phrase rhymes in Hebrew. The land was tohu vavohu, which means unordered and uninhabited. This is the ancient way of talking about the pre-creation state what we might call nothingness. For the biblical authors, non-existence means having no purpose and no order. And the next line uses another image to say the same thing. And darkness was on the face of the deep abyss. What's the deep abyss? Yeah, it's a dark, chaotic ocean. It's another common way the ancients described the non-reality that preceded creation. Now, here's where things start to get interesting, because in the midst of those dark waters, God is present. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The Hebrew word for God's Spirit is ruach, which can refer to wind or breath or God's invisible presence. So you can't see it, but God is present in the darkness, ready to bring order so that life can flourish. Yes, and this ordering happens in a series of six days. Each day begins with the phrase, and God said, and then ends with the phrase, and there was evening and morning. Yeah, every day addresses those problems introduced in verse 2, that there's no order and no inhabitants. So on days 1 through 3, God splits apart that unordered darkness into three ordered realms. Then on days 4 through 6, God fills the uninhabited wasteland with creatures. Interesting. Let's see how that works. Okay, so the first realm of order begins with light on day one. Ah, yes. Let there be light. This is God's own glorious light that fills and contains the darkness as he separates day from night. God's establishing the order of time. Okay, and then on day two, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. What's the vault? In the ancient culture of the biblical authors, the sky was perceived as a solid dome that holds back waters. God's depicted here as splitting the chaos waters in half, above and below, which creates the realms of the sky and the seas. And then on day three, let the waters under the sky be gathered into one place and let dry ground appear. God is establishing the realm of the land and it emerges out of the chaotic waters. And then there's a bonus creative act on day three. God invites plants and fruit trees with seed to emerge out of the land. Okay, so we've got the realms of time, the realm of the sky and the seas, and the land. And they all have order. Right. Now, it's time to go back and fill these realms of days one through three with inhabitants. And this is what happens on days four through six. So on day four, let there be lights in the vaults of the sky. 
God installs these lights, the sun, moon, and stars, as signs and symbols that reflect God's own light. He gives them his own royal power to separate day and night. Then on day five, let the waters swarm with living creatures, and let birds fly above the land. Yeah, these are the creatures that live in the waters below, and those that fly near the waters above. Then finally on day six, let the land produce living creatures. They emerge up out of the ground to live on the land. And then, matching that bonus act of creation on day three, God makes a special land creature, human, or in Hebrew, Adam. Then, God provides all of those plants from day three as abundant food. Now, over and over, God says what he created was good. But then, after making humans, God says that it is very good. Yes, humanity is the climax of days one through six, and their importance is explained in the first poem in the Bible. So, God created humanity in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So humans come up from the ground like the other land creatures, but they're also more. They're God's image, which means that together, men and women embody and represent the creator within his creation. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, ruling over the creatures. This is the purpose of being God's image, to oversee creation as God's partners and representatives in the world. Very cool. Now, after the six days, we get a concluding line that links back to the key words of the opening line. And so we're completed, the skies and the land and all their inhabitants. Except there's one more day. It stands outside the pattern of days one through six. It's the big climax. And God completed on the seventh day the work which he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all the work which he had done. And God blessed the seventh day and set it apart as holy. So God rests on the seventh day. This is a standard biblical image where God, after ordering the cosmos, comes to rest and dwell in his sacred space. It's like the whole world is a holy temple where God lives with his people. Now that phrase, there was evening and morning, it doesn't appear on day seven. That's right. The seventh day has no end. That's because Genesis 1 is describing God's ideal vision for the whole cosmos. A place where God lives with his partners to rule the world in harmony forever. Yes, the seventh day is the goal of creation. It's actually so important that the author of Genesis 1 has woven the number seven into every part of the story. There are seven days of creation, seven announcements that creation is good. There are seven Hebrew words in the opening verse, and then two times seven Hebrew words in verse two. And then the statement about the seventh day has three lines of seven words. Wow. So the first page in the Bible is doing way more than just telling us how the world was made. Right. Genesis 1 has been designed to show us that God's purpose is to share creation with his images so they can rest and rule it with him forever. And that purpose is what the rest of the biblical drama is all about. That's pretty good, isn't it? That's pretty good. You're allowed to clap. A third observation that's very important in this story of creation is the writer wants us to understand this is really important. The culmination of his creation is, is us. It's you and, and it's me. And this is so important that, that we read about the creation of human beings in both the first two chapters of Genesis. Chapter 1 
in verses 26 and following, and then again in chapter 2. Now, there are two aspects of human beings that are, are brought out in these two chapters of Genesis. The first is that we're very finite. We're very limited. We're fragile creatures. We're not gods. And Genesis is really clear about this. I'll tell you one of the ways that it's really clear about. Everything else that God, that God speaks into existence, everything else, he just speaks into existence. God says, let there be, and there is. Now, now with us, not with us, in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7, it says that God reaches down, as we just saw, and forms us out of dust. Genesis chapter 3, and Jim will talk about this next week, says from dust we are made and dust we return. One writer says this, he says, we are, we're little dust bunnies. <laughs> that's, that's all we are. Now, it switches though, right? The dominant alternative worldview to Christianity in our day says th that's all we are. We are, we are apes with opposable thumbs. That's it. We're dust bunnies. We're products of chance that are just compositions of chemicals. But that's not what God says. We come, as it said in the video, to the culmination of God's creative activity. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26. And then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground, all the things that I've created. Verse 27, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And it is in this final activity of the week we see God do his best work. He creates male and, and female. He creates you and me. He saves the best for last. In other words, we are the jewel of God's creative work. We're not just products of chance. We're handmade. We are, um, the ch I don't know if anyone uses this phrase anymore, um, but we are the cherry on the top. We are the piece de resistance. And this is such a, a momentous step that God deliberates with himself. In other words, he calls the divine counsel. Look at verse 26 again. Then God said, let us make mankind in our, our image. Now the us here is plural, representing, I believe, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Now at this council, there could have been other spirit beings that God created. I think there were. Jim will talk more about that next week. It's really cool. But from the context, I believe God is calling a, a meeting with God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. And here we're being allowed to peer into this divine council and watch as the, the Trinity create mankind in their image. And you say, well, Lee, you know, what are the implications of this? Let me illustrate um, with a personal story that happened to me two weeks ago. On Monday, August 16th, Josh Foliart texted me at 8.47 in the morning. Um, I've kept the text. I'm going to cherish the text. I'm going to preserve the text. He said, what are you doing between 2.30 and 4.30 p.m. today? Have you ever been to a Razorback football practice? Would you like to join me? 
As a former player, he's allowed to go and bring a guest as well. Now, it's all a blur to me now, but I think I blurted out, I'm the biggest Razorback fan ever. That's a bucket list for me. May I please go? Please. He's like, of course. That's why I asked you, meet me at the office at 2 p.m. We'll drive over together. And um, as we were driving over there, it's like a kid who is anticipating like a pony for Christmas. And as the weeks lead up, you're like, am I going to get a pony? Is the pony coming? I don't see any hay. I don't know. When's the pony? On the way there, I'm like, is this really going to happen? I mean, how will they know it's us? How can we get in? And he says, hey, we're on the list. Don't worry. So we, we parked the car we walk up to the practice field and my biggest fear takes place. There's nobody there. I mean, the players are there, the reporters are there, but there's nobody there. There's no list, there's nobody. I'm like, I can't get in, they won't let me in. And Josh says, don't worry, let's just walk in. And we did, and it was way too easy. Nobody even checked. <laughs> and guess what? Nobody cared. Nobody looked at us. Nobody, nobody batted an eye. No one said, no one even said, hey, get out of here. We just kind of walked around for five minutes. We're just walking around. And finally, this young lady runs up with Razorback gear. She worked for the Razorbacks. And she says, hey, are you Josh Foley art? He says, he says yeah. He says, I've got your, your special passes. Passes, not just for him, but I, I get one too. And they handed us this pass. Do you see my name? It's on both sides. And I put my pass on. You can see that right there. I call it the bling that will make people sing, right? Guess what? Now everybody notices us. Everybody. Not kidding. Not kidding. The director of football operation comes up and he talks to me, to me for 10 minutes. Literally, he says, you see this practice? I said, yeah, yeah. He said, Coach Pittman got that from Coach, Coach Smart at Georgia who got it from uh, Nick Saban at Alabama who got it from Bill Belichick. I'm like, are you kidding me? I feel like this is insider information. I matter. I matter. Then guess what happens? The big dog himself Sam Pittman comes up and he, he looks, he looks at my pass, uh, the bling that will make people sing and he goes, hey, I'm so glad you're here and he shakes my hand and he says my name not once but twice. I wanted to hug him. I don't think he was in for that, but I wanted to. Scott Fountain, special teams coach, stops by and says hi. Dow Loggins, the tight end coach, talks to us like three minutes. Radio and TV personality, Bo Madeline, comes by and just chats with us. Players seeing our VIP necklaces think we're special. Josh, Josh's necklace says former player. Mine doesn't, but I probably could say that, right? <laughs> Players, they stop. They, they, they pause. Maybe I'm a scout. Maybe I own an NFL team. Maybe I'm a billionaire. Right? Right? Who knows? It doesn't matter with this baby on. I'm special. At one point, we're an hour and a half into the practice, and Josh looks at me, and he says, hey, hey, um, do you want to keep going? I said, buddy, if you leave it up to me, I'll go home, get my sleeping bag, come back and spend the night here. 
You say, Lee, okay, what's the point? Here's the point. Because every single person on this planet is made in the image of God, they, they wear one of these necklaces. That is, they have the mark of VIP on them and they deserve very special attention. Thus, anytime we encounter someone, we are encountering the divine spark. We are encountering the fearfully and wonderfully made. We are encountering the handiwork of the triune God created in his image. Every single person we will ever meet is a VIP from God's perspective who carries the very DNA of God. Practically, this means, hold on, you ready? We do not cancel anybody. To cancel anybody is to cancel somebody who is a VIP made in the image of God. I know what's going through your mind right now. Whoa, 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 Lee, what, what if um, it's people that I don't agree with or they don't agree with me or maybe they've canceled me? Or, 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 or maybe they've, they've hurt me. What do we do with people who don't agree with us? Three things. We pray for them. We reason with them. You say they won't reason. We love them in the name of Jesus. We pray for them. We reason with them. We love them in the name of Jesus. How can we do this? We can do this because you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Write this down. I thank you, God, that you didn't cancel me. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this while we were still sinners, worthy of canceling. Christ died for us. Okay, let's finish this out. We still have a, a couple good things to look at. Verse 29. He provides food for them. Then God said, I'll give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit um, with seed in it and they will be yours for food. And you notice they only get a, a vegetarian diet in the garden. And some of you are wondering, how could it be paradise if they only got vegetables? Um, you'll have to struggle with that one on your own. The theory of one writer is that it was after the fall that vegetables started to taste like vegetables. <laughs> and then... God does another wonderful thing. He gives people work to do. Look at verse 20, uh, Genesis chapter 2 and verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. It's a curious thing when you stop and think about it. Essentially, God left creation with work still to be done, unfinished. And this is before the fall. 
Some people will say, well, yeah, work came after the fall. Part of, you know, to work, is, it's, it's, the, it's the effects of sin. No, no, not at all. God didn't have to do that. And some of you are thinking, God, why did you do that? Why didn't you just get all the work done to let us hang out? So why does he do that? He does that because he made us with a need to contribute, to flourish, to add value, to make a difference. Here's what's amazing to me. God invites us to partner with him. This is crazy to be co-heirs with him. As it says in verse 26 of Genesis chapter one, to rule and have dominion over. He gives us the culmination of his creation, amazing dignity. And he says, I want you and I to rule this earth together. So steward it carefully. Don't abuse it. Be wise with it. Steward the plants and the animals and the seas and the skies and the people that are, be careful. But God didn't just make us to work. Look at verse 18 of Genesis chapter two. The Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make um, a helper suitable for him. Now the writer has been setting this up for a while. All along he, he has kept repeating this refrain. All God saw that it was good. But now in verse 18, God says, it's not good. Why is it not good? It's not good for man to be alone. Adam needs a companion. You ready for this? Adam needs community. So now we get the story where there's a parade of animals that are all brought before Adam uh, to see if any of them might be Adam's type. Verse 19, whatever the man called each living creature, that was his name. Adam is a good namer. He really is. Verse 20, but for Adam, no suitable help, helper could be found. Adam says about each one of the animals, oh, I like it, but it's not really my type. Right? Giraffe, no. Hippo, no. Duck, bill, platypus, nope, nope. So God creates a woman, verse 21, Genesis chapter two. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. And then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of man and he brought her to the man. Now I am not naive. When it comes to men and women and God's design for them and God's designed for marriage, things have radically changed over the last 50 years, in particular over the last few years. This is not the talk to unpack all of that. We've done that before at New Heights and we will do it again. But for now, let me encourage you to read a very small yet powerful book by an English writer, a woman by the name of Rebecca McLaughlin. It is phenomenal. It's called The Secular Creed. In this book, which is very short, she addresses five prevailing secular creeds, secular doctrines that are prevalent in our culture today. And she responds to each one biblically, including this whole concept of design, men, women, marriage. Now we have copies of that right in the back, straight back there. Um, I highly recommend that you buy it and, and read it. They're only $1,000 a piece. <laughs> we call that a fundraiser. No, just kidding. $15 fits such a deal. Back to the story. So Adam decides that she, Eve, is his type. Verse 24, and the two shall become one flesh power of one. 
And they live happily ever after in this perfect paradise and community, not only with themselves, but with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Don't you wish? Not quite. Next week, we're going to learn about how the man and the woman blow it and how they fall away from God and how God's dream for community is temporarily shattered, how the kingdom is broken. And then Jim is going to teach us how God stubbornly refuses to give up on his dream and in turn launches a a program for redemption. So, so come back next week. Invite your friends to hear about the most compelling and true story ever. The story, as Mick says, that all other stories will bend a knee to. The story of God. One last thing, we're done. Each week we'll send out an email with resources connected to where we are in the series the Bible Project videos, the one you just saw, books and other resources. Um, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of resources, but I'm going to encourage you. Um, make sure your Bible is your number one resource. Read ahead biblically. Underline things. Take notes. Write things down. You say, well, what if I have questions? Come talk to anyone on staff. Take me out to a very expensive meal. I'll talk to you. I'll talk to you. I'll let you wear my, my VIP necklace, I promise. <laughs> to get that email, um, sign up for the Thursday newsletter. Um, and if you, don't ha- if you don't already have have it, there's a QR code on the screen here behind me that you can use to sign up for it. There it is. Um, you can also check the box on the Connect, Grow, Serve um, page in your handout today. So um, at this time, I'd like the prayer team to come on up. They're gonna be out, spaced out all over the room. And I'm going to encourage you to come up and get prayed for. Come up and get prayed for. Um, Let me pray. Let me pray. Do me a favor as your heads are bowed and you're just taking some time to to think about how good God is, what it means to sit in Trinitarian community, what it means to be a child of God. Just say thank you, God. I know it sounds silly, but even even me sitting in that chair again brought me back 38 years ago when God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit invited me into real community. I was miserable, I was suicidal, I was desperate. And God said, I'm your father. Jesus said, I'm your savior and your friend. The Spirit said, I'm your guide, I'm here. Maybe for some of you, you've come into this community because it's therapeutic, and that, okay. It's like self-help, but you've never sat in Trinitarian love. I'm gonna encourage you to do that this morning. Right now, just say, Jesus, I believe you're the only way, the only truth, and the only life. And I put my faith and my trust in you. I turn from my sin, Jesus. And you as the perfect sin sacrifice, I give my life to you. I repent of my sin. I say, Jesus, come into my heart. Come into my life. Come into my mind as Savior and the Lord of it. 
others in this room, you know them, you love them, but you've struggled in this season sitting still in that Trinitarian community. You started to run after other things, just like Adam and Eve did. It won't satisfy, I promise you. It'll never, ever, ever meet the depths of your needs, ever. Just repent. Say, God, I'm sorry. Forgive me, I'm back. Father God, thank you for your word. Let your word be true, and every single one of us will embrace it and come to a place of bowing to your lordship, bowing to your authority as we embrace the greatest story ever told. Father God, I pray for every person in here who's not sat in Trinitarian community. I pray that today would be their day of salvation, their day of freedom. And I ask it in Christ's name. Amen.